0: Five, four, three, two, one, zero, all engine runner, off. we have a liftoff. Hey,
1: space enthusiasts. So, two episodes ago, I did a quick overview of space stations. On this episode today, I'm actually talking to a space station startup called Think Orbital. They're proposing an innovative technology solution to build bigger stations and lots of them. I discuss all of that with the co-founders, Sebastian Asperlo, the CEO, and Walter Holop the CTO. Enjoy. If you like the podcast, quick reminder to please leave us a review or rating on your favorite podcast platforms such as Apple. Thank you. And as always here, are a couple of short messages from our sponsors, and then please enjoy my conversation with Think Orbital. My name is Raphael Rodkin, and I'm an investor and advisor to space companies. Just as a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and nothing should be taken as investment advice. This podcast is sponsored by NanoAvionics, a satellite manufacturer and mission integrator. Their technologies enable many space companies worldwide to offer services that improve life right here on Earth, such as providing global connectivity, conducting Earth observation, or contributing to scientific discoveries. Check them out, and also check out my episode with the CEO and co-founder. Sadly, I am not a rocket scientist, But I'm an alumnus of the International Space University. ISU offers a number of educational programs about space worldwide. Check them out at isunet.edu. Well, hello, everybody. Today I have Sebastian and Walter here from Think Orbital. Welcome, guys.
0: Hi, Rafael. Thanks for having us.
1: Sebastian is the CEO and Walter is the CTO, and they're both co-founders of Think Orbital, which is basically a company pretending to build space stations, but... Tell us more about it. Give us the elevator pitch.
0: Yeah, I mean, not far off, Rafael. So um, the way we see ourselves is a foundational company for the new space nascent economy. And effectively, you could see us as a real estate operator. So infrastructure builders in space. Uh, We do have our Halo product, which is the Orb 2, uh, which is a single launch, self-assembled, eventually autonomous um, space station. And what we're gravitating towards is to have also non-human rated as well as human rated activities. So if you can imagine somebody would need some form of storage in space or maybe a place to put their computational power or, uh, you know, some sort of infrastructure for manufacturing, that's where we come in. Uh, that's our core business model uh, to be able to facilitate other companies or basically platform, a space platform for where everything else gets built on.
1: And so how does how does one wake up? I mean, I, I have many people on this podcast, right? And I ask this frequently, how did you wake up and you decided, you know, to, to build a satellite constellation or, or a rocket? But I mean, space station seems to be a different level. How did you guys wake up and like decide to do a space station? Oh,
2: well... Uh... I was kind of looking into the industry and and asking myself, it's like, how does the industry accommodate to the new uh, capabilities that are coming to market, like the Starship or or New Glenn? And I couldn't see anything, and that that got my mind spinning. Um, And at some point, I was thinking, well, perhaps humans can do like a big, a dump satellite, something that would be not so mass optimized and could be made much cheaper, or potentially building space station that could be uh, assembled in space and create even larger volumes. And as my mind wandered, uh, I came up with with this idea for assembly and and get it refined over time uh, going to conferences publishing papers and nobody could tell me why this wouldn't work there was only one thing left to do uh, and that's when we met with sebastian with his business development skills and and project management skills Uh, and i'm more of an engineer Uh, so at that point we started a company because if no one is doing it and no one can tell me why this cannot be done uh, that's the next step And,
1: and i guess that means until today nobody has convinced you Otherwise, by
2: definition,
0: <laughs> giving you a good counter argument. Well, we had uh, so far just under 130 discovery calls. And one of them earlier on was actually with you, Rafael. And uh, it's true. we Not only we've not been told we can do it, but everyone's been so supportive and so excited to the extent that I would say almost every single call, people came up with a new idea on how we could use this. So it's uh, it's been really fascinating. And um, I think the whole space industry it's is very supportive of each other. I think we all have this sort of vision of giving broader access to humanity, to to space and and so on and so forth. So let's pick up on that.
1: It's basically the you know, use cases. And you started mentioning it a little bit in your elevator pitch, but let's go a little bit deeper. So, where do you see the main the main use cases for a station and was curious to hear, So both in the near term. And, and then as well, maybe some sort of like funkier stuff that maybe people are not thinking about that much yet that may happen in the medium or long term. Well,
0: we're looking about six different markets. Um, and I have to emphasize that our core business model is in-space assembly. And that's where we want to focus on. And this is why, you know, we want to be able to support other companies, be it Action Space or even the guys that are doing Orbital Reef or Starlab, as well as many, many other companies to be able to come in and augment the their, their product offering. However, when we look at the markets um, and, and where the uh, the sort of space economy is, is moving towards, well, the first one, as I said, is in-space assembly, but also why not, you know, storage, fuel, and also servicing as well. We are talking to some great companies out there. You have, for example, OrbitFab and, and many others that are trying to really expand uh, the potentials around even servicing as well. know, Then they have the classical research and manufacturing, like we've seen, for example, in the ISS. And I think those are some of the core capabilities that we see also when it comes to Orbital Reef, Starlab, and, and Northrop's space station. Then moving on also within the scope of what they're doing, would could be also in-space hospitality and tourism. And for some of the use cases that I'm mentioning now or the markets, we already have done, for example, the architectural design. We have done some of the costing, not necessarily because we want to run them ourselves, but because we want to show our customers or customers of our customers how this could look like, give them some sort of immersive experience. Then moving into the future, we're looking at space resource capture, which is one of the um, key theses of uh, so far our largest prospective investor, you know, kind of more science fiction than fact maybe today, but to facilitate uh, mining of asteroids. or why not mining on the surface of the moon? And in a way way uh, to tap into all of those resources for key rare earth metals that are needed here on earth and at the same time lift off uh, what otherwise are very, very polluted uh, type of industries. And l- last but not least would be some sort of surface application or orbital application around Mars. Imagine a situation where you know, we master the assembly technology, and we're able to send, before we send, you know, a human crew mission, we're able to send this far out, be it assembled, and it could be used either as some sort of refuge, or, you know, a forward station for when the humans arrive, then they have a place to, to be before perhaps they go into um, into the surface of, of Mars. But this, of course, this is more science fiction. In fact, it's more out into the future.
2: So I, I want to add what really differentiates us is the capability to create large volume in space, which is enabled thanks to the assembly technology. So imagine what you could do with volume uh, that you can put up with a single launch. We are talking about two to four times the internal volume of, it, of the ISS, depending which which vehicle uh, you design it for. The imagination can run wild. Like If you have so much volume with a single launch, what could you do with it? And everyone that looks at it has different ideas how this can be utilized, which is kind of a blessing and a curse at the same time. because you talk to 10 investors to 10 customers and they see 10 different opportunities but
1: isn't that could you not run into the sort of same issue that you have with some other you know aspects in space for example like the question that always comes up about the moon is like okay what's going to be the, the first killer app for the moon is there potentially a different problem here so like okay what's the first killer app for space stations or is it as simple as tourism
0: this is what we're exploring at the moment so we have a, a pipeline of a customer discovery exercise we do have some level of understanding but i think more research is required in terms of What can we find on the surface of the Moon? And what, in a way, could help not only things, you know, markets that are perhaps mature here on Earth, but also how can those facilitate helping the the space economy grow and flourish? And some of the materials could be used also for further assembly in space, but we understand that some of the uh, resources could also be used for fuel. So these are the things that are fairly early stage, but we're looking out, uh, we have a, a roadmap all the way to 2069, And and obviously, as you go far far into the future, as I was mentioning earlier, it's more science fiction than fact. But we do try to capture all the feedback that we get from uh, potential customers, also collaborators, and then follow through from the beginning to to the end. You know, sort of this sort of try, uh, test, if it works, carry on, and then deliver maybe some white papers on uh, three of the of the business models. Wait, 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 hang
1: on, hang on a second! Did you say you have a roadmap out until twenty sixty nine? Yes. Okay. So sorry, I, mean, I got uh, two follow up questions here. One: Why twenty sixty nine? Is that just to like possibly please Elon because he likes sixty nine, or does <laughs> someone that, like reasoning how this? And then do the you, other question, you? of course, is like: What what is the de- end? What happens in twenty sixty nine? What's the end point? <laughs>
0: No, that's great. So there are two things. Indeed, you know, the 69 with Elon, which I I have to put out, I'm I'm an Elon fanboy. I I have no shame in saying that. And the other thing is, you know, 2069 would be 100 years since we set uh, foot on the moon. So for us, that is quite a, a milestone in itself. And what we tried to do with the team, which were diverse team, we're 16 currently plus uh, five outstanding advisors. You know, we, we come up with ideas in terms of what could you could use the R2 for or the assembly process. We have also as customers, and we don't want to necessarily trash any idea unless we think it's it's impossible to set out. And we try to put them in, in line with, you know, what is the technology that is readily available? How much of that technology has been tried and tested in space? How can we combine some of our innovative technology to be able to satisfy those needs? And then based on that... Um, and based on the on the market needs uh, and so on and so forth. Then we set out this plan which starts first. Well, we have a demo flight uh, in early 2024, but really the product that we're looking at will be in 2028 to satisfy some of the LEO needs as a space platform. And these are some of the ones that I mentioned earlier. I can go in details. Then move into, into geo. Then move into orbit around the moon. Then some sort of surface application. Then look at, you know, the potential uh, resource processing and utilization of asteroids. And that's when you start getting really far out into the future at, at sort of that uh,
2: yeah, I think we are definitely focusing much more on the next few years, but um, that being said, going back to the Moon, uh, even though we don't have any any clear uh, business plan and no one knows what's the what's the killer app for, for the utilization of the Moon, having the assembly technology that allows you to build things in space uh, also allows you to, uh, to build similar things uh, on the Moon. And when, once you add to the fact that uh, the structure is made of aluminum, and, and that's one of the things that Moon has a lot of, uh, you can see kind of the future opportunities that go more into the science fiction, but definitely it's a viable thing.
1: And so strategy-wise, I mean, so you guys at the minimum are building the platform, right? As you said, like, yeah. you, a, you know, in-space construction company, right? And then you can kind of go from there. Are you going to stop there or are you going to also operate the platform and maybe exploit some of these use cases yourself, right? Because this, again, is a question that's relevant for some other business models in space as well, right? We come across this discussion very often when, for example, we're invested in in-space manufacturing, right? And so there's also a question, do you just provide the ability to manufacture or do you actually at the very beginning have to do some of the use cases yourself to get the whole thing started? Kind of like, you know, in the same way that, you know, Apple, when when they put out the iPhone, they kind of kind of help put out the first few apps themselves just to kind of get the whole ecosystem started. How are you guys thinking about this sort of like strategy wise?
0: Yeah, that's what we may have to do. So again, I keep emphasizing our core business model is to assemble things in space, infrastructure like a real estate operator in space. But what happens if the market, you know, by the time we get there, it's not readily available. So we're looking at the second or third business model where we may be able to tap into some existing market here on Earth that would generate some of the revenue going forward. I think not dissimilar. Also, you mentioned, I think Apple is a great example. Also, you look at SpaceX where they have launch capability, but also they have internet provision. Mm-hmm. Um, however, um, and, and this is why we're, we're looking out and we're having conversations with, uh, with some other startups and some other companies as well. If we're able to choose, we would rather focus on our key business model and support those companies that want to manufacture in space or need storage in space or need computer capabilities in space or fuel um, so we can concentrate on, on what we think is our kernel technology.
2: That being said, if we are technologically ready uh, we would love to do space tourism because uh, that's the only market that's kind of proven and that can be definitely profitable and you can look into the past at how much did the space tourists uh, pay and was the demand. So that's kind of the one of the few markets right now that could be directly profitable and Axiom is uh, pretty much going in the direction. However, it's also the one of the kind of technological and process wise most challenging uh, applications because you have human occupation with untrained people uh so in that case it kind of it's kind of on on the end of the pipeline of what you could do if you had space in space uh so we are looking more into kind of non-human rated applications first the first
1: one just to stay on this for a minute it's kind of interesting right because as you guys said you have sort of multiple times the volume of the iss and then on the iss obviously a lot of space is taken up by um you know glove boxes and sort of like other Sort of experimental equipment, right? Which, of course, you guys will also have life support systems and everything. That's going to take up some space, but sort of, I think your net space, if you build like a tourism focused space station, uh, what you call the Orb, right, would be quite a quite quite a bit bigger than the ISS, right? So, does that bring up sort of the interesting possibility of what could you do with that that tourists can't do on the ISS or Or Axiom, even.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, because of what what I said, that was the first use case that we developed for the orb two, and uh, we have a sixty five page architectural design document. We have three three team members that have a space architecture background, and we have effectively uh, a distribution in terms of the activities that you could do inside. We have even the detailed distribution in terms of the size of each one of the areas, and you know things that perhaps in the ISS are very difficult to to get. It's a quiet area to be able to rest, you know, because the dormitories, if we can call them that way, in the they're in one of the busy corridors whereas the distribution the Orb 2 would be at the opposite end of the more busier activities. And, and Orb 2 configured for Starship and, and in current architectural design we're looking at about 47 crew members and that would be distributed between obviously those leisure paying members and then the servicing staff and some uh, operational staff as well. But that gives you an idea of uh, of the difference in magnitude uh, of internal space. And we have discussed also potential activities and that's what the discovery calls are very useful uh, on what you could do to be able to keep them um, in in a way uh, a safe environment, but that ex- experimental or experiential activity, uh, uh, sort of being in space or Earth, maybe six to ten days. Um, I think at this stage, obviously, you can do it in the ISS, and we just saw uh, two, two gentlemen that went up to ISS now. Uh, but really, to give that level of leisure experience as opposed to uh, being in a research lab like in ISS.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, Rafael, have, have you seen or read Ender's game? Yes. So that's kind of a lot of people who saw it or, or, or read it. It's like, oh, you could do the laser tag in, in the large volume sphere. It would be amazing.
1: First thing you're thinking <laughs> about is basically taking kids up there and having them like wargame it out. <laughs> no,
2: <Why not?
1: laughs> on, an, on a non-serious note, but uh... okay, on a semi-serious note connected, I guess I could see it. Um, okay, let's let's leave some sort of the kids and, and by the way, I'm as you know, At the very end, we will talk about sci-fi and Ender's Game is an absolutely fantastic book for many reasons, including uh, sort of Theory of War. But um, sort of Taking what you just said on a semi-serious note, I guess if you have a lot of that space, you know, you could have a better gym than on the ISS or even like some other sports activities,
0: right? Yeah, we would love to share with you um, the distribution. Exactly. You have uh, a leisure, recreational, sport activities. Um, there, There's so many different sections in the leisure type of Orb 2 that um, that because, because of the fact that the ISS was not built for leisure, you cannot have it in the ISS. Um, so even with, you know, we're looking at the bar. I I don't want to give too much away <laughs> at the moment, but yeah, it's no. uh, it really it it really is a, a different level of experience. I I imagine to some extent what you may be able to get in orbital reef or Starlight, you know, sort of that's this next gen of uh, type of space station. Yeah,
1: we'll talk yeah, about I, we'll I, talk about those additional, um, like, recently announced stations in a a second. Um, But let's actually come back um, to the technology, because you kind of keep mentioning the technology and assembly, and I just realized we actually have not talked about it. We should kind of talk about it at least a little bit. So what is the sort of special technology that that you came up with that makes this large volume possible?
2: So um, what we are doing is uh, we are taking two... Very mature technologies, Uh, both of them are very mature on Earth. Uh, They are also tested in space and combining them in a way that hasn't been done before. The assembly process allows you to launch your space station in not fully complete states. So imagine that you have a pressure vessel wall. pressure pressure walls and they are flat packed in the payload fairing of the rocket which allows you to util- utilize more space and uh and mass of the rocket and then you launch it you can imagine like sort of like ikea flat packed space station um and then you launch it uh, and then you have a robotic arm that can pick up the individual pieces place them in the locations uh where they belong and then we have a system of temporary latches that kind of align it together and this way you can build up as Spherical pressure vessel, uh, but there is no strength or air air tightness yet. It's just all aligned together uh, and and latched And the second stage of the process includes electron beam welding, which is a very mature technology on Earth from 1960s. Um, For example, the F-14 fighter jet wings were uh, welded to its fuselage this way. And uh, it's a perfect technology, kind of the most potentially the best welding technology humanity has. But it has one big disadvantage, and that is it requires high vacuum to operate in. So that makes it very expensive on Earth and slow. But it's perfect for space. And in fact, it has been tested uh, in space by uh, Russia and Soviet Union. So when you combine these two, robotic arm and electron beam welding tool for the robotic arm you get the capability of moving segments in space of the pressure vessel and then weld them together and that's kind of the core of what we are developing
1: yeah i was going to ask whether there was an in-orbit demonstration but so i guess you said the russians have or the soviets have done it have have the americans done it as well and sort of like what, what was the extent of these tests was it just kind of like putting two small pieces together for fun uh, or was there something <laughs> serious and we kind of check that it kind of held up over time or
2: yeah, there's an interesting history to that. So, so NASA did uh, zero g in plane uh, tests. Uh, they were supposed to launch it, but for budgetary reason, they didn't. So they instead uh, convinced... I uh, think it was shortly after the breakup of the Soviet, Soviet Union to, uh, to give NASA the welded samples that the Russians did and NASA analyzed them. Uh, but what Russians also did, they had a, like a handheld uh, electron beam welding gun. And you have uh, amazing pictures from mare mirror of like, uh, a female astronaut welding things during the EVA on the outside. It was purely experimental, but it worked. Um, there is an interesting reason why robotic arms are better than humans' first of all they are more precise but the the electron beam welding at higher power if you want to weld something thicker uh, emits x-rays and that limits how much power you can operate by a human astronaut but uh, do it robotic and you don't have these limitations okay
1: do you have any guess of why we have not used or used that technology more in space
2: Uh, talking to everyone from nasa it's like yeah we've we've studied that uh, but uh, we never never launched anything so i think it's more of a priority uh kind of NASA prioritizing different things and very often uh congress congress in the US was not very inclined to do anything with assembly or refueling uh in space but that is slowly changing
1: on your sort of own technology roadmap is there um because I guess these tests were probably a while ago you're talking about Mir um is there something that um I mean would you go directly to kind of Trying to build a prototype station, or is there some sort of like first IOD where you kind of you know weld a few things together and see how that (laughs) works?
2: Uh yes. So our kind of highest priority right now in our uh, short-term plan is to, uh, short-term, uh, for next two to three, two, two, three years, is to develop, an orbital build, develop and build orbital demonstrator uh, and, and have a mission that would prove the ability to assemble and weld things in orbit. So you can think of it as a one-in-ten uh, scale space station that would do exactly the same job, and the, the orbital mission would be purely assemble, weld, pressurize, and, and then that's it. Uh, so nothing practical, just, ex- uh, just increasing the readiness level of the technology. And then uh, this this
1: is audio only, right? So you have this very nice picture behind you where you can actually, I think, see the sort of a, a rendering of a of an orb space station and so first of all it's a it's a it's a sphere right it's a, the, the core module is a, is, a, is a sphere and then you basically have so sort of, i guess a service module with the the solar arrays and uh, tucked on and then the sphere it looks like basically um, the way it works is is um, is it hexagonal elements are basically welded together
2: it's a kind of ball geometry and there is very many ways how you could do this uh, this one fit best with the kind of the size of the individual segments uh, and, and the mass, but you can do it in different ways. But uh, what we are proposing as the Orb 2 space station uh, resembles to Suckerball. You have uh, pentagons and hexagons put together. And spherical shape is generally the best shape for a space station, uh, except it doesn't fit very well into a payload fairing if you want to launch it in, in, uh, in a rocket.
1: Right, which is where the um, the the of flat packing comes in clearly, and you're right. You, you say, okay, hexagons. Oh God, this is like this is like math that's beyond me now. But basically, you cannot do only hexagons. right? you have to throw in some pentagons? Okay, that's uh, right. <laughs> it's definitely beyond the scope of the what we're discussing here. Okay, and so at the end of uh, the day. Um, I'm sure you guys have run some internal numbers. So, I mean, obviously the ISS, which we all love, is famous for being probably one of the most expensive sort of like public projects ever. Um, there's some numbers out there also on the you know, the, the other proposed space stations. Um, but is, is this going to provide a material sort of cost advantage? Um, like just roughly speaking, is this going to make space tourism much cheaper? This is what we're planning
0: for. So if we were to take the Orb 2, and I'm jumping ahead now as a, as a sort of leisure hospitality platform, our uh, metric target is uh, half a million um uh, Per, uh, per private space astronaut, another various names for this, for a 10 day stay without the cost of launch. So you can see the difference. I mean, how much are the people paying now? Is it 55, 70 million to go up there? That's with and, the launch.
1: Uh, that's with the launch. I think there was a, there was this announcement from NASA. I don't know whether that's still valid even, but when NASA opened up the ISS more to commercial activities, right, uh, about two years ago, they actually published the daily rates on the ISS. Um, yes. they actually weren't that expensive i think it was like uh, like 33 thousand dollars or something per day um and and then for some reason i think you actually have to pay extra for the internets per per megabyte or something which i don't really fully understand why they couldn't <laughs> put that in. but but anyway it wasn't that expensive um the the, the biggest part was the launch
0: yeah uh, so we, we looked at some of the numbers that came up and and they, they seem quite extraordinary um uh, some, some, not, not the numbers that you're referring to. They were more in the hundred thousand. Um, but yeah, I mean, the idea is that once, when you have higher volume, and and also, um, you know, one of the pillars is the orbital assembly, and the other pillar, it's to do with, uh, you know, how can we make this profitable and how can we build it in a way that can be scaled up and mass produced. So most of the hexagons and the pentagons, most of the parts would be produced at scale, and that would also bring the the cost down. And by having one launch maybe a second launch for the feed-out. So that's two, maximum three launches compared to the ISS to 46 launches. And then, you know, you start bringing all of the all of the costs down, which would then be passing over to, to our customers. Yeah,
1: and, and so just to interject, we're talking about these sort of like daily rates. Some people may not be aware, but it, it may sound like obviously a lot of money, even like sort of the $30,000 Per night, there is a number of hotel rooms on uh, on Earth which actually are more expensive than that per night. So again, sort of for like wealthy people who is probably like space tourists for the foreseeable future. This this is quite this is not a lot. Um, Okay, Um, uh,
0: we're in talks with another company that have already a clientele of about fifteen hundred individuals, um, high net worth individuals that are ready to to go to space. Obviously, with with different brackets, right? So from maybe space perspective type of access. All the way to um, to an ISS or action space type of experience. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about. Um, we've
1: mentioned a few times already. Sort of um, other proposed space stations like Starlab, Orbital Reef. Both of them were very recently announced. Um, sort of the end of um, end of October, within I think a span of four days. And yeah, you just want to give us a, like an overview of you know what the landscape is out there. It seems to be a very exciting time for space stations. Um, you know, which is probably substantially driven. By, by NASA and uh, what's called the CLD program. Do you just want to give us a little bit of background, you know, what CLD is and, um, and why it exists, sort of, you know, what's going to happen to the ISS, you know, because not everybody may be aware?
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, thanks. And we, we touched a- upon the International Space Station briefly earlier on in the podcast. And we believe it is an outstanding feat of engineering, but it cost $100 billion to go online and about $50 billion. To maintain it over the last 20 years so it's a quite expensive exercise and, and it's been great i mean there's been so many advances in in in, in research and technologies thanks to it but what happens next so the iss was originally due to be decommissioned in 2024 now there are discussions that it's going to be taken all the way to 2028 maybe a little bit a little bit further and what happens afterwards, right? So the, um, the U.S. is moving, especially NASA is moving to this kind of more public private partnership, especially you know, with the success that they had with launch with regards to SpaceX. So they're moving to a similar model when it comes to um, commercial, commercial space stations. So they want to be one customer of many, um, as supposed to be in the one that actually foots the bill of, of having these uh, space stations up in orbit. And because of that, they have uh, been collaborating with uh, some, we believe, outstanding companies. Uh, one of them is Axiom Space. Um, in fact, they are, you know, without going too much detail, they are, they're planning to launch a module fairly soon and being able to, to extend the, uh, the capabilities of the ISS. Then you have- and just to be clear, the module will be attached to the ISS at least yeah. at the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Originally, it will be attached to the ISS, and then it will become a, a, a sort of a solo flying station. Uh, and then what happened now with the Commercial Liaison Destination Program, which we uh, or um, that we also applied, and, and we had some great feedback there as well. It's uh, NASA saying, okay, well, we have Axiom. But we want to know, you know, which other company out there would like to come in and, and, and come back with some proposals. The first phase is actually to have a preliminary design review, which is, and there may be some testing as well, but it's about the technology, technology stack, uh, the readiness, you know, the cost, what is the business model, how this is going to help the economy, so on and so forth. And that's where uh, Blue Origin, alongside uh, Sierra and many other uh, key partners, they came back with the concept of Orbital Drift, which um, which we believe is, a, is a sort of interesting. Some areas the are similar generation to the uh, to the ISS and Axiom, but they also come with inflatable. So you have slightly slightly expandable module, as opposed to um, just using the, the fairing space in the rocket. Then there is also Starlab, uh, led by NanoRacks, also Voyager, and, and, uh, and all, other amazing companies as well, mm-hmm. similarly using uh, the inflatable. And then you have Northrop, which we don't have a lot of information. It looks like it's still uh, cylindrical, like the ISS. And those three last companies, uh, or conglomerate of companies that I mentioned are the ones that have been awarded around 130 to 140 million dollars each by nasa to be able to to design that um that uh, prd document now um where, where we come in and uh we we don't see ourselves i mean we do an- analyze the market we see all the market players and and clearly I mean, these are companies with uh, heritage have been operated over some of the decades in aerospace. And uh, when the NASA CLD came to a close, the submission date, we were five months young and and still we managed to submit it. There were 52 interested parties, which were narrowed down to 11, now narrowed down to nine. And we were one of the the finalists. Clearly, we didn't have uh, high hopes that we would win considering all the other uh, applicants. But what helped us was to build a platform to get to know all these great collaborators, to have an ecosystem fulfilling uh, with them and partners all of our technology stack uh, and, and, uh, and, and also have a relationship with potential customers as well and, and so on and so forth. And where we see each other, and just to round off the, uh, the answer, is we see as potential collaborators, we see that we could, with our technology, look at what happens as a next generation type of space station or next generation type of uh, infrastructure in space and ultimately, our hope is to be able to augment the capabilities of not only these companies that I mentioned, but also other companies that may want to have a business and operate in space.
2: I just want to add to this that uh, what NASA was looking for was a very small space station, I believe two to four astronauts. Uh, and also, they really put a lot of attention to have, have it only including proven technologies, like to be to be as ready as possible so they can have guaranteed that in 2030 uh, it's going to be launched. Uh, so companies like ours... Um, and didn't have much chance with that respect because uh, we are offering something much more ambitious than that. And and in fact,
1: all of these proposed stations, if I remember correctly, are significantly smaller than what you're proposing, right? Or even the ISS from memory. At least in their basic configurations, I realized that I think all of them are are modular, so I guess you could Mm -hmm. expand them.
2: Yes, it was interesting to see those kind of ambitious renders from from, uh, uh, the orbital reef, and then you see the actual proposal, which is like one sixth of that. Uh, So they probably expected to expand in the future but for the NASA's proposal they needed something small
0: and I think like Wojta was saying it's key that they also target that trial and tested technology. Nobody wants to be in a situation where we have a gap between the ISS and what comes next. And, um, and, and, and I think that's where we're cheering them on. And we have so far a very good collaboration with, um, with at least two, of, two sorry, three of the offerings. And we hope to be able to continue that collaboration going forward.
1: What also find very interesting about, um, I mean, the ones I know a little bit better startup and orbital reef, but it's also like in there even almost part of the names, they're already kind of hinting at really the, the ambition to have this as a, you know, um, for commercial usage, right? I mean, Starlab, I think they created this thing called the um, the Science Park, right? Yes. And yes George Washington Cover Science Park. And then Orbital Reef is it's, it's even more blatant. They're calling it a, a mixed-use business park, which yes, is sort yes. of directly hinting at sort of the desire of getting um, commercial customers in there. It's interesting.
0: Yeah, and if you see, just to, co- to complement... So they're focusing mostly on human-rated, on-orbit destination, which is great. That like we said, we don't want to have a gap after the ISS. Where we come in, it's a more versatile platform, something that can scale up to provide, for example, industrial-level type of space and capabilities in space. And this is why we see it as complementary, uh, as opposed to, um, you know, sort of in competition. By the
1: way, um, where of where, anywhere does the um, the Chinese, the new Chinese station come in, the Tiangong? I
2: think it's, it's a... Um forcing function for NASA and for U.S. Air Force. Like, uh, it's, I cannot imagine proud United States government saying, oh, we don't have a space station, but China does. So in this case, I think where it comes in is uh, make, it will make sure that there is funding for the private uh, space stations. Uh, that's purely my opinion. That's not based on facts.
1: I mean, is that a potential opportunity for you guys? In the sense that um, we're talking about that sometimes with regard to to launch, to launch services providers, right? Um, and even satellite constellations. That so you have the traditional space countries which have certain capabilities, but then you know maybe some up and coming, or what we call up and coming space nations, um, they want to have that capability too, and so they can you know buy it somewhere. I mean, could you guys not go to some you know emerging space nations that like who may have an ambition to to have their own space station and try to sell your product. Uh,
0: that is a possibility. We have considered it, um, uh, but in our internal team and also with our advisors, our alliance, our, our, our alliance is to the West, especially to the U.S. to support their global uh, leadership. Uh, but we wouldn't discount to be able to support other companies that are part also of the, um, if I can say, the, the Western alliance. <laughs> That's the right you know, I was, I
1: was, I was going to say. I mean, you don't have to go to like a you know extreme strategic competitor. Um, yeah, yeah.
0: You know, sell it to like an ally. I don't know, like you know the UAE or somebody. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. I mean, I have, for example, I mean, this is early stages, but I have been contacted by the Argentinian government as well. I was born there, although I live most of my life outside, because they also have some ambitions when it comes to, to space. And But for us, it needs to be clear that, you know, we're, we're um, in line with any regulatory requirements that the, the U.S. imposes for us to be able to do trade uh, with any entity outside the U.S.
1: Exactly. On that, is your any parts of your technologies of export controlled, restricted? or uh,
2: Not at this point, uh, but definitely we will run into the issues as, as we get further and further into development. And it's going to be, I think, interesting for everyone, like uh, space law-wise and, and arms export control and all all these kind of new things that will become more and more important as the space economy uh, increases in volume. I I think the whole concept of uh, of space will have to change to, to make it accommodate uh, space stations like ours or even all the manufacturing and and other things.
1: And so, I mean, talking about strategic competitors, um, <laughs> one of them has, uh, this is quite well known, obviously, recently tested a, an anti-satellite weapon and has created a lot more space debris. Yes. Uh, we've had multiple instances already of, you know, um, uh, near misses and actual hits on the space station or space debris, right? I think uh, quite recently a chunk of the Canadarm was taken out or um, yeah, chipped off at least by space debris. I think we had a few instances already where the the ISS astronauts had to go over sent to the lifeboats just in case. I mean, you're... Or well, your sort of orb two or three, I forget now, but your sort of your ultimate orb is an even bigger target, so to say. Um, How are you thinking about the sort of like the whole increasing space, um, debris, danger? Are you going to, for example, go to a different orbit where there's maybe less danger or uh, is there a certain type of protection or how are you thinking about that whole topic?
2: Yeah, there's like no ultimate way how to deal with this. Uh, When you look at ISS, the solar panels even, uh, they are full of little holes. Uh, That happens. On the other hand, humans developed uh, a very good technology to protect kind of the important part and the pressurized vessel called Whipple Shield, uh, which can generally there is hundreds and hundreds of holes on the ISS, but never a single one penetrated the pressure vessel in the 20 years history. So we are just following the same master here, uh, putting the same technology all around around the sphere. Uh, But also, it's a a sphere. It offers the smallest cross-section for a given volume. Uh, So in that sense, just passively, it's a lower risk. Cross-section of the ISS is pretty huge. Um, But yeah, once you have big chunks in space, no shield can save you you have objects moving at uh, five miles a second or seven kilometers a second and you just have to get out of the way hopefully soon enough uh, anything that's any threat will be monitored and you can predict it but today like there is there is a certain size that is big enough to, to penetrate anything and small small enough that it cannot be detected and that's the real danger
0: and, and one of the companies that we're collaborating with and also looking at the potential for supporting space force on the orbital prime also uh, treats the issue of, um, of orbital debris not, not on the smaller type of orbital debris but you know sort of a spacecraft that in one hand uh, maybe up, upcycled or maybe just to be able to um, you know to break it down into pieces to put it simply for our audience and, and bring it down down mass it as opposed to keep leave it orbiting or just downmass it somewhere that it could be dangerous here on earth. and that's where the orb2 comes in handy because if you need to do any type of uh, activities as such, then at least you're working in an enclosed environment and you're, you reduce the risk or you minim- mitigate the risk of any additional type of debris being created.
1: Enough. besides the the space debris, which came up because of these recent events, is there any other sort of, um, I don't know, risks or challenges that we haven't discussed, which, um, you know, interesting to discuss? And it could be really anything. I don't know. It could be like thermal management. It could be like life support challenges. It could be, I, I don't know. Anything that we haven't discussed, which you think is relevant mentioning and the challenges of designing and operating a space station? Oh,
2: yeah. Space is hard. There is no shortage of challenges uh, from the engineering perspective. All all that you mentioned, uh, thermal management is always an issue. Uh, Life support systems. uh, No one did large volume structure before in space uh, with with life support. So that's something that has to be... um, kind of not developed but utilized better, scaled up, figure out how to do the the airflow and other things. Um, yeah, I would say there is always, always challenges that will come, but all of that all of them has been done on some scale. So um, it's not like we are entering an uncharted territory.
0: And I think where we have this sort of um, quite good energy with Boita and this bromance brewing is because although I have a background in electromechanics, I'm the one that comes normally with the how can we how can we make the business model work? how can we do it in a way that, you know, we could expand, support our customers, et cetera. And both is the one that comes with the fact from the engineering side of things uh, as to, you know, what are the limitations, et cetera. Uh, but, but it's true that, um, you know, we will have engineering challenges. I love solving engineering problems. That's why we are going now for this orbital tech demo which is divided into four phases. And effectively, like Boita was saying before, we're actually looking at increasing our our technology readiness level. Um, But I mean, the the overall challenge is how can we make uh, the space economy, if I can call it that way, grow, become a bustling space economy. Uh, We want to support humanity's broader access to space. We want to support Humanity, when it comes to lifting, you know, if, if possible, heavy industry or certainly the most polluting activities like mining that we do. And these are the things that really drive us um, to be able to, to pursue what we're doing here at Think Orbital. And by the way, on, on that note, um, I'm just going to assume that um, you guys both read Gerard O'Neill, The High Frontier. Oh, yes, I love it. I was actually also watching the documentary um, that came out. Yeah, I mean, and that's it. You know, if you see the uh, the, the invention, which, uh, Boita's invention, which I think it's breakthrough, it's actually really targeting that, you know, trying to uh, get away from the tyranny of the uh, spacefaring, to be able to master the technology that allows to, to build, assemble things in space. And imagine a situation where, you know, we are able to capture resources from the moon. And in fact, you know, those resources help us to be able to keep manufacturing things in space. And it is clearly so much easier to uh, to lift off from from the moon than it's from earth so there, there is a cyclical um, set of events that i think we're kind of taking that wave now isn't it there's just so much going on in space and we really hope that we don't have to wait another 40, 50, 60 years to see a, a breakthrough, and that's where where we would like to come in.
2: Yeah, I remember my my first presentation at a conference at this topic, and my first slide literally was: This is ISS, this is where we are today. Uh, this is O'Neill cylinder, that's where we want to be, and that's where we see our future. And then there is definitely many steps in between. Uh, what was the first step in the direction? And that, that's that's where I placed uh, the Orb 2 and Think Orbital as a company. So it's literally like the first step on a way to to the future future that we want to live
1: in i really hope one day we're going to get one of the if twitter is still around of we'll those twitter posts with like how it started and how it's going and it's going to be how it started like i don't know like Skylab or something and how it's going like an o'neill type station that would be really that would be really cool but i mean talking about um o'neill stations so, i mean one missing element and this has been proposed in so much science fiction as well is of course um artificial gravity and there's some you know uh, at least when we're talking about um, human space flight, of course, ironically, if we're talking about non-human activities like manufacturing, gravity is the last thing you want. That's precisely what you don't want, right? But when we're talking about sort of like sustained um, human presence, um, I should really do a completely separate episode on that and for medical reasons um microgravity is bad in many ways okay. um when do you think we might get artificial gravity like a spinning type thing or
2: yeah i think uh, when there is a demand for it so w- w- when do we need it probably it would be very good to have it if we ever go colonize mars but it's not necessary we can survive half a year in microgravity but it would be definitely helpful for colonization so in my mind we will need or want something like that when we have some some mars cycler going around uh, that's big enough and we can use it but until then as exactly as you mentioned, one of the reasons why you want to go to space is because there is no gravity. Uh, so, right now, there is not much forcing function for that, unless you want to simulate, do experiments in like moon gravity or Mars gravity, which might be more interesting for research, because for that, you do need to be first in zero G and then, then have some centrifuge giving you moon gravity.
0: I imagine it would be a path of least resistance. So, let's imagine a situation where you know we are not we are not able to have a full autonomous activities of planet. So that means we have to have humans. So just you know looking at asteroid, if we could actually capture capture an asteroid and and, uh, and and sort of mine the minerals, that could end the strip or the, the limiting factor we have around cobalt, for for example, on Earth. And if there is sufficient interest, but we don't have sufficient um, autonomous capabilities or robotic capabilities to mine that, then that means we need to have humans. And if we need to have humans, then we need to actually have some technologies. Uh, to be able to provide for a human rated environment, something that can sustain life much longer than you know the, the, the three, five, six months uh, without having a, a significant impact on on human health. And that's where we are within Ti we're also uh, on some of the use cases that we're looking at, we are seeing, okay, how can this be done? You know how much space do you need? In fact, without having to go all the way to an O'Neill cylinder, which would be an uh, ultimate dream for us, you know what what are what are the ways we can get around this and and um, and we have some ideas let's say and uh, they're not they're not at the sort of the first stage of our technological de- technological development great so as, as we're winding
1: down here on time um, there's a few more questions I want to ask you guys I mean first first question would be what are your sort of your near-term goals what's the 2022 plan
0: so we're currently uh, in funding mode uh, we started about three weeks Um uh, we are uh, raising $15 million. That should be enough for us to be able to go through the technology development, the launch uh, of our orbital tech demo. Uh, we already have a number of um, uh, investors have pledged, uh, one of them already, $3 million, They are interested in mines, mining in space, so they're very keen on ex- actually going forwards. Um, and the, you know, once that is successful, we, in parallel, also do uh, site planning. We're already scouting for certain roles that we need. So effectively, in, in, in 2022, uh, provided we get the funding. Funding will be moving to a site, start developing the technologies, deliver phase one and phase two of our orbital tech demo, which is the manufacturing side and also the uh, the the, uh, the welding, uh, the electron beam welding activities, and then. Keep going through our milestones and uh, towards the end of 2023, early 2024, will be to finalize phase four, which is basically to launch uh, and commission and do the assembly in orbit. Great. And so if there's any investors listening, they they know
1: how to find you and can reach out to you. We'll put your website in the the show notes as well. And then the last couple of questions, as you guys know, I always ask. um, So one is, you obviously came, as we discussed at the beginning, to do this by right? so some creative thinking and a perception of that this is something that was needed. Were there any other sort of thought, uh, things in space, potential business models, idea you? you found and maybe still find attractive like something you would do if you weren't doing think orbital
2: that's an interesting question um, to me there is still so much space for uh for doing satellites cheaper i mean higher chances that starship will be successful are higher and higher every month every year and when that happens uh, i think there is a lot of space that could be commercially successful to to have satellites that are a fraction of a cost they are not as as mass optimized but to me this is something that you know um, is the future as well we have
0: to take also our drive and, and- why do we do this? Uh, in one hand, it's uh, I, I personally want to go to space. Um, so that also implies some sort of uh, habitable module in space or, or beyond. Um, then there is also the fact that we love solving uh, engineering problems and, and you know how, how much harder does it get other than doing stuff in space. And I also personally believe in the, um, the overview effect. And, and I think we're at a stage in humanity that we really need to try and make that next leap. And the overall effect from many people have gone into space have, you know, come to the conclusion that we are one with the planet, which is you know a small blue ball in this huge universe. We should be one with humanity, one with all living things here on Earth, and really start looking after our planet for, for the future generations to come. So, uh, and I think if there was anything else that that um, that would come up that would be able to help us achieve any of those three ambitions, then we would probably be looking at that. for, for now. We believe um, a future bustling space economy requires a space platform and requires in-orbit assembly. It requires a company that would help build the infrastructure where everything else gets built on, and that's that's why we're we're driven. Good answer. I like that.
1: Brings us to the um, the final question I was asking. We have talked a little bit about why, uh, so sci-fi already when we're talking about in this Game. So let me do it a little bit different because we're talking about space stations. Before I ask you about your sci-fi favorites in general. I'm going to ask you a space station-specific question. So famous space stations from sci-fi. Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, um, Babylon 5, Tycho Station in The Expanse. Um, And then if you want, you can pick some other ones as well.
0: Which one is your favorite and why? Mine has to be Tycho Station. Um, First of all, because I love The Expanse. Uh, and because it's huge, <laughs> that's what we're going for. Uh, kind of, a, you know, a, sort of a, a, a little civilization um, within a, a, a sort of a, a space station. Yeah, they seem to have good bars there, which is clearly an yeah. advantage. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm not sure if there are
2: any, any space stations sci-fi that really capture my attention. I really always love the concepts of like the Star Trek shipyards, uh, kind of structures, large structures that you build the ships in. Uh, But yeah, they they always model the space station, otherwise like cities, and I'm not sure if that's that's what will happen. So my answer is probably none of those. It's a boring answer.
1: Fair enough, you can come up with something better than than, than sci fi. That could be the ultimate ambition. Okay, guys, well, okay, taking a step back. Sci fi in general, favorites?
0: Well, I mentioned already, uh, yeah, the expanse. Uh, you know, James Corey's the expanse, everything from books to uh to the to the uh, Amazon series. Um then also Mars is a series from Nat Geo. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but it's really nice. Mm-hmm. It's a combination between um uh sort of uh kind of a, not a mockument but it's kind of documentary with, with with real facts uh and also the uh the movie the martian
2: for me i'm really curious about how the foundation series that's gonna be on some streaming service how that will turn out because when i read it for the first time that was a that's probably still one of my favorite books foundations foundation series uh but of course whatever andy weir writes recently like Mar- uh, martian was fantastic and his new book uh hello mary is also so great. And it's probably also gonna become a movie. So I look forward towards that. Terrific. Well, guys, thank you so
1: much. Um, best of luck with the with the fundraising and all of the other things that are going on at um, at Think Orbital.
0: Thank you, Rafael, for having us. It's an absolute honor. Speak so bye. Bye bye. Thank you, Rafael.
1: Well, that's it for another nominal episode of the Space Business Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider giving it a five-star rating on your favorite podcast platform such as iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at podcast underscore space. Also consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward business podcast. If the podcast got you interested in learning more about the business opportunities in the space economy, check out my new online course on space entrepreneurship on udemy.com. The link is in the episode description. Lastly, if you have any feedback, including ideas for guests, and that may include yourself if you have an exciting space story to tell or interested in being a sponsor, drop us an email at spacebusinesspodcast@gmail.com. at gmail.com. I look forward to seeing you for the next episode.